Hello and welcome to Becoming Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms and our schools. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your classroom and in your school, with guests ranging from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week, I am joined by Jonathan Firth. Jonathan is an author, PGD tutor and school psychology teacher. His research interests focus on memory and on teacher research engagement, and he has authored several books relating to the psychology of education as well as school psychology textbooks. These books include The Wonderful Psychology in the Classroom, which he co-authored with Mark Smith, How to Learn and The Teacher's Guide to Research. In my conversation with Jonathan, we explore what teachers need to know about cognitive psychology and why knowing that will help make teaching easier and reduce stress. We also explore the role that memory plays in learning and what teachers should know. We discuss desirable difficulties, including the spacing effect, and also why practitioner inquiry is an important process for teachers to be involved with. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan, and I hope that you do too, and take a lot from it. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Darren. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. Certainly. Um, we're going to unpick a few um, things that, that I know you'll be, you'll be expert in today in the podcast, but just to ease us in to the conversation, can you share a little bit about you and your career in education to date? Yes, yeah, sure. So, um, uh, at the moment, I am a teaching fellow at School of Education at University of Strathclyde. So quite a large part of my job is working with PGDE students, and particularly PGDE psychology. Um, my background before that was working as a secondary school psychology teacher for quite a number of years. Um, so it was almost 20 years in total that I was delivering uh, psychology at school level um, and going even further back. Uh, you know, my, my very first experience in the classroom was actually abroad. I was working as a teacher of English foreign language abroad um, for some time in, in Prague before I started in schools. Um, and that was actually in university. So I'm kind of I'm back to university level now. And, and most of my time in schools was uh, working with senior age group pupils. Um, so so that's, that's, the, that's the bulk of my experience. I'm, I'm very interested in... Um, psychology as part of the curriculum. Um, I've written some textbooks for psychology for school level, higher and GCSE in that five. Um, but I think as a, probably what the bulk of what we've been talking about today is more my interests in memory and metacognition and how I've kind of gone into uh, supporting other teachers um, in terms of classroom practice and things like how we learn. Uh, and certainly in the later part of my time in secondary schools, I was just becoming very interested in that, having a psychology background partly, 
and just as a teacher wanting to do things effectively and getting engaged with the research into that. Certainly, and, and as you mentioned there, we're going to unpick a few of, of, of um, sorry, try and get a lot of learning out of you in terms of, of memory, metacognition and cognitive psychology in the classroom, because you wrote a wonderful book with, with Mark Smith, Psychology in the Classroom, which I, I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm going to kick right off um, with that. Um, there's now a vast research into to cognitive psychology and it has many applications for the classroom. But teachers cite they are, they are often too busy to engage with the literature. But you write in Psychology in the Classroom that many of the ideas in this book will make teaching easier and reduce stress. Why is this? Yeah, I suppose you, you have to be careful what you write if somebody's going to at some point a few years later say, well, explain this, please. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I've, I think firstly, I completely understand why teachers feel too busy, you know, because it can be an incredibly full on job. There's always so much going on. You're, you're juggling so much as a teacher. Um, but I think perhaps I know from my own experience, perhaps there's an element to which you're so busy, you kind of forget to stop and ask important questions like, you know, which of these things is more important and are there things I could do that would actually simplify things a bit, you know, in the long run. Um, so, I mean, just, just an example, and it was actually um, just the other day and I was thinking about this podcast, um, but I'd shared an article on Twitter about uh, the, the learning styles myth. And uh, there's a teacher from down south, I think, who'd uh, commented about all the time she'd wasted writing uh, about visual and auditory learners and their lesson plans and I think it's, it's things like that you know we, we are actually wasting lots of time doing things that are not very effective um, uh, and in many ways no shame in doing so because we're doing it because we think it's effective but um, engaging with research could actually help us uh, focus more on the things that are most beneficial and cut out some of the things that are quite time-consuming but are not very beneficial and um, you know, if we, if we figure out which aspects of practice are, are, um, have more impact, then we can make sure that we're um, focusing more of our time on those. I, think, I mean, one thing that probably springs to mind and would, would um, be recognisable to, I'm sure, a lot of listeners is uh, marking. Um, so I know Dylan Williams, somebody who's written a lot about this, we spend so much time marking and giving feedback, but is actually effective. And there seems to be some evidence that suggests that actually, although feedback is useful it can be good to reduce it a little bit um, if you give feedback if you give less feedback to learners if you make them do self-assessment on occasion um, or if you kind of reduce or delay the amount of feedback they get they can actually become more sophisticated learners because they're having to do more by themselves and they're having to figure things out by themselves rather than just getting handed to them um, and that is also saving the teacher time. So, so things like that, you know, if we kind of dig into it and think, well, you know, are there, you know, is it actually beneficial for me to spend hours and hours um, doing this? Um, Certainly, I like what you said there about, although we have wasted a lot of time doing ineffective things, we, were, we, are, we do do them for, for the right reasons, but perhaps understanding, knowing a little bit more about how, how we learn and, and um, some of the research into that, we could prioritise our time a little bit better. So I want to dive right in, Jonathan, and ask you about memory and the role that it plays in, in, in learning. But firstly, what, what are the common misconceptions teachers have about memory? Sure, yeah, I mean, memory to me plays a very fundamental role in learning, and I suppose it's very much connected with what we were just talking about, because it, it's going to waste time if we teach something and then six months later the, the learners have forgotten it, we need to teach it again. Um, and I think it's not just 
teachers is just memory is fundamentally quite hard to understand. There's a lot of misconceptions about it in the general public. Um, people generally think, um, that was really interesting uh, study by um, Dan Simons and Chris Chabri that looked at the general public's beliefs about memory and they found that they're radically different from what psychology researchers think about memory. Um, people often think that once a memory, it's kind of like a video camera that you, you record it and it then just stays there and doesn't really change. And that's not really how psychologists see memory at all. So I think there's this idea kind of linked to that of what um, some researchers have called a stability bias, which is the idea that once something's in your memory, um, firstly, it's going to stay there, which is not really true a lot of the time. And secondly, that there's, no really benefit, there's not really a benefit of practice because you know it now. So why would you keep practicing? And I think that both of these are um, kind of misconceptions that have implications uh, for teachers. So, so, you know, we, we might think, well, if I've taught this well, the pupils understood it, they were answering questions in my class, uh, job done. And, and the pupils are going to think that as well. I think, yeah, I understood that, I got that. Um, but if they, can't, if they can't retain it after a few weeks, you know, if you were to ask them again a couple of months down the line and they can't remember it, then you, you could almost say, what was the point in doing it? Um, and I think practice is similar. We, we tend to think um, if, you, if you practice and you're getting the answer right, then you can almost like put it aside. If you imagine a kid revising with flashcards, they might say, okay, I know that one, I'll put it aside. Um, but actually at that point, they're showing performance, but they're not really showing learning. We cannot, we cannot really judge learning over the slightly longer term. So researchers like John Dunlosky and Catherine Rawson have said, once you get to that point, you should then practice a further three times up widely spaced intervals um, in order to make sure it's really consolidated. Um, so, so I think that idea of, of memory being kind of fixed and not really changing, that it's kind of like this mental storehouse is a, is a misconception that's very widespread. Certainly. So then what role does memory play in learning and what should teachers know? Because you've also written that a solid understanding of the mind is therefore a part of our professionalism, but only a part. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think firstly, um, you quite often get a fairly negative reaction of when you talk about memory, actually, um, that people sort of say, well, I'm not interested in memorizing, I'm just, in, I'm more interested in learning. And, and, and I would say, yeah, of course, we're not interested in just like rote memorization and not understanding it. But that's not really what I mean. I mean, I think perhaps, again, it's coming from a psychology background that we don't really see these things as being all that different that um, understanding is based on memory as well, that knowledge, that skills are based on memory, that all of this is, is memory, that just rote rehearsals, just using your memory badly, basically, because you're gonna forget it quite rapidly if you don't understand it. Um, and, you know, of course, we want, we want learners to understand. Uh, we don't want them to just kind of not be able to use the information they learn. So I'm certainly not advocating for that. Um, but yeah, I think that um, in, terms of, in terms of the second part of your question, uh, the reason I was sort of saying it's only part of a professionalism is because I do think that teachers should, to some extent, at least engage with the evidence and, and understand uh, how memory plays a role in their professional practice. But it's always going to be quite specific to um, the particular context and the particular learners and the particular area of the curriculum. Um, and the chances are that there isn't like a, a, a research literature on your exact course. Um, you know, somebody's gonna have done laboratory experiment that's relevant, um, but there's still a gap there. So, so we need to kind of interpret it in context and think how's this gonna play out um, with my pupils? Um, and it may vary obviously from class to class and pupil to pupil as well.
Certainly, and, and a part of, of memory that I really want to hone in on, Jonathan, is working memory. So, so what role does working memory play in the learning process, and what do we as teachers need to be aware of? Yeah, working memory is really fascinating, actually, and um, in many ways, this was more my background than the long-term memory stuff, which I, I probably focus on more now. As, a, as an undergraduate, we did a lot on working memory. Um, so when we talk about learning, actually, we're thinking more about long-term memory because we're thinking about stuff that lasts. But working memory, as you say, it's, it's, it's pretty critical because it's all about taking stuff in in the here and now and doing things with it. So we can maybe see working memory as a kind of a temporary storage and processing system that anytime you read something on a PowerPoint slide or hear your teacher say something or have a conversation with a classmate next to you, you're using your working memory for those tasks. But one of the main things that tends to be of interest to researchers is the fact that working memory is actually very limited so you've it's like having this um sometimes the analogy is used of like a desk it's your desktop and your long-term memories your storage files or whatever um although i was thinking actually like for teachers maybe uh, a whiteboard is a better analogy like if you imagine a whiteboard except it's a really really tiny one so as soon as you write one sentence you need to rub it off before you can write you know write the next one learners really they can't take in that much at once um so uh, from that point of view, then we start thinking about, well, we need to cut down distractions and we need to make sure that what we're getting them to focus on is the most important thing and that we're not sort of overloading them. Um, How does long-term memory buddy up with working memory? Um, yeah, I mean, the two things are interrelated in ways that are quite, perhaps quite subtle. Um, I mean, one, one factor is that your existing knowledge is going to um, play a role in terms of what you're taking in with your working memory. So if you already have a lot of knowledge about something, you can almost take these little mental shortcuts and that limited space, it doesn't get bigger, but you're using it better because you're able to kind of group things together and you have a meaningful understanding and you can fill in the gaps for yourself. Um, so somebody, you know how hard it is to concentrate on like a book or a lecture if you don't really understand it very well. Um, whereas if you have really good knowledge, you can almost like skim read it because you're, you're, you're just much more efficient at extracting it. But your working memory hasn't got any better. Um, mm. It's really interesting research actually on, on chess players because it was assumed for a while that chess players must have this amazing visual working memory. Um, and they, they could like memorize chess boards just looking at them in a few seconds. Um, and then they showed them like scrambled ones that you would never see in a game and they were no better than your average person. Their, their visual working memory wasn't actually any better. They just had really good knowledge of the game of chess and they were able to use that to kind of, um, that, that, that foundation of long-term knowledge um, in order to do a working memory task. So that's kind of what pupils in the classroom are doing all the time really. The more expert they are on the subject, um, the more the more they can do with their working memory. Certainly, and, and they've come across as more fluent, don't they, in terms of how they're talking and what they're doing and how they're, how they're accessing tasks, because that space in their working memory is, isn't overloaded. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think it is um, important not to overload the space in the working memory. And I think we also need to think about attention, because quite often attention is it's almost like this limited pie that you don't want to divide up between too many things and if they're having to simultaneously listen to the teacher giving instruction and also read something on a slide and also think about it um, then that's very very challenging but if the stuff's quite easy for them then a lot of the you know maybe or the instruction is very familiar because the teacher gives the same kind of instruction again and again um, then it becomes easier for them to do that kind of mental multitasking but for beginners that's very very challenging so yeah we need to avoid kind of overloading and I think I mean, I see myself sometimes, you, you, 
maybe in a CPD event or something like that, then there's a, a, a pair work or a group task begins and then you're like, what are, what are we supposed to be doing? I missed that instruction. And it's not on the slide and it's not on the handout. So you just ask the person sitting next to you. And I think kids find themselves in that situation all the time, but it seems obvious to the teacher, um, but we almost need to, you know, kind of provide uh, a little bit of extra scaffolding, particularly when they are quite new to something. Um, but like I say, routines and things like that can help because it makes things more automatic. And the more you make things automatic, um, the more it kind of frees up your attention and your working memory space to, to do the important stuff. Really, Certainly, if you've, I wrote about that this week, actually, where if you have routines in place for how children enter the classroom, leave the classroom, hand out textbooks, if you have similar routines to how you, can, how you construct your questioning and ask your question, if you use countdowns and so on, and that's there, it frees up that space and their, their working memory to then focus on the question you're asking them and what you want them to think about and what you want them to learn and it makes learning that little bit easier for them yeah i would agree with that i mean i think you know to, to some extent we do like to vary things as teachers but it's a case of like what do you want them to focus their attention on you don't want them spending a lot of time and but what, what would they go home and tell their, their parents about you know at the end of the day you don't want them to be spending all that time thinking about and remembering the fact that there was this kind of chaotic system for handing out the textbooks and it was different from all the previous days. It's just not worth it, you know. It's so much easier to just make these sorts of things routine and simplify, really just like simplify instructions as far as possible um, so that they're focusing their attention on the things, you know, that are actually to do with learning. So you've mentioned attention in twice. So would you say that, that teachers focusing on what the, the pupils are attending to is really important in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, the, the trouble is it's quite hard to control because we can focus on what we do um, and, and we can modify that and we can modify instructions and our, we can modify our PowerPoint slides and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's quite hard to know when a child is sitting there in your class, they could be thinking about anything, you know. <laughs> so, the, so, so there's this. And, and, and to be honest, it's probably inevitability that at least some of the time the kids minds are wandering off to something completely different that's just part of life um but again we probably just need to make allowances for it it might not even be a bad thing actually um especially when it comes to things like essay writing that a little bit of sort of daydreaming and pondering you know sometimes that leads to creativity sometimes that leads to linking ideas together that we hadn't previously done um you know sometimes ideas might come when you're you know walking your dog or playing sports or, or whatever and that you think oh well i'll do that later when i'm writing an article or something um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's okay, but we, we do need to make allowances for it. Um, so if we are giving, I know, spending like 10 minutes giving information verbally to pupils in the class, we need to consider the fact that some of them probably weren't listening for at least some of that time and think about have they got some other source um, that they can uh, rely on if they, if they forget that. Certainly, thank you. We're going to move on to this idea of desirable difficulties, which, which you've written about on, on your blog before. And we're going to unpick some, some strategies that you've researched in spacing and interleaving. Before we do that, can you share what are desirable difficulties? Yeah, so in terms of like the link between working memory and long-term memory, this is more a long-term memory idea, really. And the basic idea is that some of the things that lead to effective learning in the sense that people can retain and at a later point, maybe months or even years later, recall and use information and skills that they've been practicing at a previous point. Um, 
some of the things that make that more likely to happen also make things more difficult in the short term. So we call them desirable difficulties because they're difficulties that make the learning process and the practice process more difficult, but they're desirable because they get better outcomes. Um, so, I mean, not, not everything, not every difficulty is desirable, um, but, but some of them are. So, um, you know, we, talk, we talked before about feedback. So if you, there's some research studies that suggest that if we give learners a little bit less feedback, if we space out that feedback and maybe delay the feedback a little bit, that makes it harder, but it also makes them retain more over the long term. Um, so that would be an example of a desirable difficulty or, um, you know, maybe testing somebody on something rather than just telling them it um, would be a desirable difficulty. Um, but giving people bad instructions or something like that, that's not, you know, that would be difficult, but it's not uh, desirable. So it has to be something that's going to lead to them actually remembering better, you know, a few weeks down the line or more. Mm, certainly. And I like that. That's obviously the, the, the end goal for, for what we want to achieve with our classroom instruction is we want them to be able to retain that months and, and years down the line. So firstly, um, what is the spacing effect and how do we best take advantage of that in the classroom? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's one that was a really big focus of mine as a, as a classroom teacher when I was first kind of engaging with um, some of the cognitive science applied to teaching. Um, and I think it really struck me that it's a, a powerful idea that we could pretty much all use. So, so the basic idea would be that for any given amount of practice, it would be better to space that practice over a larger amount of time. So like, for example, if you practice um, uh, studying foreign language phrases or vocabulary for 30 minutes, it would be a better idea to do 15 minutes today and 15 next week rather than to do 30 minutes today. You've done the same amount of practice, but it's going to be more effective if you have a delay um, it built into that process. So similarly, if pupils were going to, let, I mentioned flashcards before, so pupils were revising for a test with flashcards. Um, it would be better not to do it all the night before, but maybe to do, you know, divide that into smaller chunks. And you don't necessarily need to do more practice. You just need to um, introduce these spaces so that when you come back to it, it's kind of like reminding and consolidating um, the benefits of doing one long practice session or kind of like, it's a diminishing returns kind of thing because we don't keep improving. Um, uh, it's better to then have a delay, a little bit forgetting starts to kick in and then we remind ourselves. Um, so, you know, as I say, I mean, it can apply to, to, to loads of things in the, in the classroom or you know not in the classroom for that matter anything that we're learning in any walk of life or any kind of a course um, if you are on the verge of forgetting and really it's better to leave it for as long as you can without them actually having completely forgotten it so you know if it and that makes it actually quite tricky because teachers always say to me well how long should I leave and um, before I, before I get them to practice it and it, it depends how long it's going to take them to forget which in turn depends on what it is that they're studying because if it's something that's very richly meaningful they'll probably retain it for longer than if it's something complex and technical and quite arbitrary so if it's something that they're likely to have forgotten by tomorrow then practice it tomorrow but if it's something that they're likely to still remember next month then wait until next month before you practice it so as a, as a experienced teacher i think we get an idea because we see this year after year of what how long it's going to be before learners starting to get a bit rusty and need to practice. Um, I think the, the trouble is, I suppose, that often standard classroom practice is to do the review at the end of the same lesson and maybe the homework that night. Um, and, and the spacing effect would imply that that's really too soon to be doing consolidation. 
Certainly. And, and you mentioned forgetting there a few times. And something that really st struck me and took me by surprise a little bit is that forgetting and you actually help support long-term retention. And you mentioned there that if you would, I can't, can't remember how you phrased it, if you give enough time for them to, to nearly forget it mm -hmm. and then re, um, recap and recall it, they can actually strengthen that learning. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a counterintuitive concept. Um, again, I mentioned before this idea that we kind of tend to treat memories as if they just stay the same. But it would be better to see a memory as kind of like, almost like sinking down into the quicksand. Uh, uh, but you're going to make more of a difference if you wait until it sunk a bit before you pull it back up again. And the more you do that, because you have this kind of effortful process of trying to remember and then just managing to maybe with a few reminders, it actually makes more of a difference. It modifies the memory that we've got and makes it kind of like more buoyant and less likely to sink in the future. Whereas if you, you know, if, if you keep doing it over the, like within the same practice session, it's almost like painting something like when the, when the first coat of paint is still wet, it's not going to make very much difference because it's still fresh in your mind. So yeah, it's almost like it's preferable. And this is again, desirable difficulties. It's preferable to wait until you've, forgotten or at least begun to forgotten to forget something um, before you then practice it um, and it's going to make more of an impact um, again you know partly the reason learners don't do that is just because they're disorganized we know that they, they revise the day before a test um, and a lot of learners realize that's probably not the best idea but I think even when it comes to our classroom practice um, we, we tend to chunk things together so you might have like 10 exercises and science class or something you might have like concept and then 10 exercises well probably the kids have kind of got it after exercise three or four so it might be better to actually take the second five of those and do them like next month um you're spending the same amount of time um but you're getting more out of it i like that same digging the same amount of time but but getting more out of it by introducing that spacing um you're currently researching the application of, of the interleaving effect to classroom tasks Firstly, um, what is interleaving and how can it be applied in the classroom? Yeah, so interleaving is um, an interesting one. It's a bit like spacing. It's, it's sort of inevitable. Um, you know, with spacing, we have to have some schedule. Um, whether it's a good or a bad schedule, is, you know, there's, there's going to be better ones and there's going to be worse ones. And interleaving is a bit like that, but it's more about the order that we do things in. So if you imagine, like maybe an easy way to imagine it, um, is like a deck of cards. It could be shuffled or it could all be in order. So um, interleaved is like a shuffled deck of cards where you know, they're all mixed together. Um, and what we call blocking uh, or non-interleaved is like the, the deck of cards in order. So all the hearts are together, all the clubs are together and, and so on. And what we often do in education really is we, we, do, we do blocking, which is we spend a whole lesson just looking at one kind of thing or we have an exercise where we just practice one kind of thing several times. Um, interleaving is the, as applied to education is the idea that, well, it would often be better, again, counterintuitively, to mix things up a little bit, to, to shuffle together different types of examples and different types of problem. Um, because, partly because that's more how the real world is. You know, in, in real life, we don't, things don't come to us in neatly organized ways. We see things out of context and, and we have to recognize what they are and know how to and retain uh, or sort of retrieve the skills to, to, to tackle those problems. Um, so, you know, if you're, a, if you're a coder or something and you suddenly realize, okay, this is a maths issue, you need to recognize it out of context without having had like 10 previous similar examples. 
Um, so when it comes to that kind of long-term retention and ability to then apply and use what you've learned, um, it seems to be usually better to uh, interleave a practice rather than uh, blocking it together. So does that make sense? I mean, I can give you some some classroom examples if you like. Yes, please do. Please for the for the listeners, I think they would really really value that. Yeah. So I mean, you know, a bit like the, the shuffle deck of cards. I suppose like one of the easiest ways, perhaps, to think about it is like maths problems. So so typically you might have like problems one to ten, and and all of them involve um, like dividing fractions or something like that. So the idea with interleaving is like yes, have some problems and dividing fractions, but then fling in a few particularly ones that are easily confusable. So if you've got a couple of things that kids tend to, to mix up, they're often the best ones to interleave because that's where they're going to make a mistake later on come their test or their exam. They're going, to, they're going to use the wrong strategy because two things look quite similar on the surface. Um, and similarly in science, like um, there's been a lot of interleaving research into like, animals, so how we recognize animals. Um, but the same could apply to things like cells that's been done on uh, like comp chemical compounds, recognizing the difference between alcohols and alkenes or, or, or that kind of thing. But um, like if you imagine with animals, if you are trying to tell the difference between, trying to learn the difference between a hawk and a falcon, uh, interleaving would suggest it would be a good idea to look at a hawk and then a falcon and then a hawk and then a falcon, rather than looking at loads and loads of hawks together and then next week in the next biology class, we look at a whole bunch of falcons because by then you can't really remember what the hawks looked like. So you want to sort of increase the level of contrast and do that, that kind of compare and contrast you get by having something with something different but confusable um, right next to it or immediately after it. Is that to try and actually get the young people to make mistakes or is it because that doing it like that would strengthen their learning? Um, well, as, as with um, things like spacing, it is a desirable difficulty. So what tends to happen is people will make more mistakes. Um, but the, the point is not really the mistakes and the point is not really to make it difficult. The point is just that it will actually make them focus on the right things. Um, so in this case, the differences, like if you're trying to learn a new concept, like in geography, what does an oxbow lake look like? Well, you need to know not just what an oxbow lake looks like, but you need to know what other lakes look like and you need to know the difference between them. Um, or in English, if you want to recognize a particular kind of um, style or um, like a particular prose style or something like that, you need to know what other prose styles look like so you can compare and contrast them. So it's, it's really about getting that, that contrast so that you develop conceptual understanding. I'd imagine in PE, there's probably similar things like, a, uh, I don't know, like if a, a particular footwork or something like that, you need to know like, you know, what not to do as well as what to do kind of thing. Certainly. Um, so we've covered a little bit there in terms of memory and working memory, long-term memory, and a little bit of desirable difficulties with pitch spacing and interleaving. And you mentioned a little bit earlier on the idea of, of, of children using flashcards and, and cramming their revision. So I want to ask you, can teachers use what they learn from cognitive psychology to teach their students how to study more effectively? And what effective study habits would you teach your students? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Like I said to you, my interest initially when I was getting into this sort of area of, of research was classroom practice. But I think the next step really is thinking, can we teach pupils to understand this so it's not just coming from us and it's not just reliant on the teacher? Because they do do a lot of independent study and especially the older they get, the more independent study they're, they're doing. And the more they're doing things like deciding when to study and how to study, 
uh, for themselves. So yeah, I would definitely advocate teaching people how to learn. I would also be in favor of doing it quite early um, as long as teachers have at least some useful knowledge about how memory and learning works, then I don't see any reason that you couldn't do this from, from primary school age or even possibly before. We, we know that very young children have a degree of metacognition. They can talk about things like forgetting. They can talk about their, their toys being forgetful and things like that. So they, to, some, to some extent, they know what memory is and um, they, can, uh, they can do certain things. And even quite young primary kids need to study for spelling tests and things like that. So... Um, yeah, I mean, if they can know how to, to do things, but clearly as they get older and the more they're doing things like studying for exams, it becomes an even, uh, becomes an even bigger deal. Um, and I think the advice that is currently given is, is often <laughs> either, often either absent or else it's quite bad. Um, so I think there is a, there is a massive room for improvement and quite often I think Part of the problem is, like if I look at school websites, for example, you know, I'm seeing advice for how to study being listed under SQA exams. So we're not like necessarily, you know, why, why is this just something that applies to fourth, fifth and sixth years? You know, we could be teaching from first year. And as I say, you know, we don't necessarily, if you're a secondary school, you don't have much control over what the catchment schools are doing, but better if they've done it even before that as well. So yeah, definitely room for improvement. I mean, I think, it, sorry, in terms of the second part of your question, um, what, to, what to teach them, uh, I think quite often I end up uh, trying to tackle the problems first um, because <laughs> they're usually doing it so badly. Um, so tackling the learning myths, the bad habits, the poor practicing. Uh, like I say, I spent a lot of time in my career teaching like fifth and sixth year pupils. So I would try and get them to stop just rereading their notes. They would be flicking through PowerPoints that the teacher had given them on their phones and that was their revision, you know, uh, stop highlighting their notes. It would just be like the entire page was highlighted in yellow um, and trying to get them to do things like test themselves, space out the practice, uh, that kind of thing. Peer teaching is quite good as well. That, that tends to be a bit more widely done, but there's certainly a lot of things that are not done that could be very, very effective. Um, examples of that? Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that generally spacing is not done very well and most pupils seem to cram for the night before for, for tests. And um, in, in part, we sort of encourage that in the education system because, you know, we give them a mark for the test and quite often that is just the end of the process until they get to the end of the course. Um, so we could potentially think about that in terms of maybe next time you have a class test, sprinkle in a few things from the previous topics because they're probably not going to like this very much, but it would actually be quite good for them. Um, uh, I think, I mean, it comes back to this idea that memory is a bit counterintuitive, that we can't really trust our instincts, we misjudge it. Um, the things that, learners will often do the things that feel easy um, uh, and avoid the things that feel hard, but quite often the, the things that feel hard are more effective. So if you think about things like, you might have come across those kind of learning style questionnaires, it's, it's um, often things like how do you like to study you know do you prefer to study this way or do you prefer to study that way but that's not really the important question the important question is what works you know what's actually going to help you uh, do what do better in your tests and your exams so and and be able to use the stuff and be able to retain it for like most of your life preferably um so yeah certainly things like self-testing is a big one um uh making kind of deeper meaningful links so summarizing can be quite helpful um, uh, I think varied practice questions, um, the more variation, the better, because real life is very varied. Um, if you can make 
broader links outside a subject to other subjects, that's helpful as well. But I think learners need to be prompted to do that kind of thing. They don't always do it spontaneously. And they, they do tend to sort of separate things out. So when, although flashcards are quite a good thing, what learners often do is they take like things completely out of context and just try to memorize a phrase uh, and they sort of lose the broader uh, meaningful connections there. Um, so uh, making sure that they're not kind of losing the meaning of what they're studying as well. Mm, very important, thank you. We're not going to move away from learners and, and, and chat for a little bit about teachers. Um, and, and, and I read a little bit about practitioner inquiry on your, on your website. So why is practitioner inquiry an important process for teachers to be involved with? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny one because I suppose this was partly through my own experience of getting involved in the kind of research that we've been talking about so far, um, you know, it, it kind of occurred to me this was actually quite a good way of doing professional learning and probably more effective than what I had, you know, the sort of occasional CPD day where we've been told about this, that or the other. Um, it's, it's motivated, it's ongoing, it's applied to the classroom. So it's, you know, in many ways much more effective than just going along like the first day of term being told about something as you sit there and then just kind of immediately forgetting about it. So um, I think it's good because it's, it's linked to classroom practice. It's about having assumptions or things that you're finding difficult or things that are just a problem in some way um, and wondering why it's happening and engaging with evidence and trying to figure out how to do things a little bit better in your practice. So, you know, if, if kids are struggling to remember a particular thing or to master a particular skill, then we, you know, we ask, why is that? So it can be a good, that can be a good starting point, I think, for engaging with the evidence, not just like evidence for the sake of it, but evidence to try and tackle particular problems or particular issues. It may be sort of learning related stuff like we've been speaking about, but it might be other things as well. Like, you know, that the stuff that um, in, in psychology in the classroom, about things like motivation um, and, uh, sorry, talk. Uh, I she will, she'll not bark for long, but okay. so, something's got her attention. Um, but yeah, so I mean, things like um, uh, emotional aspects of learning as well, you know, why, why kids get demotivated, why they maybe lack resilience. Um, you know, if you've got senior pupils that are going off to university, you want them to be self-motivated, you want them to be resilient and so on. Um, so I think, you know, it, it comes back to that issue about context, that there's the research evidence, but you have your specific context um, and you want to sort of figure out how does this play out in my context? Mm -hmm. um, in the memory, in the case of memory and learning, it's going to be slightly different depending on what your topic is. Um, you know, does this research that's been done interleaving in maths, for example, apply to me teaching like, you know, first year uh, history or something like that? Maybe not. I mean, we'd really need to try it out. So trying things out and then starting to gather some data or evidence which for some people is probably very intimidating, but actually we kind of gather data and evidence all the time in education because we've got test scores and so on. So, you know, if you can sort of say, well, are the kids doing a bit better now than they were before, I, like last year, um, then it's not perfect, you know, because you've got other variables in there, but at least it's starting to get a more systematic picture um, of, of is what I'm doing actually helping. Hmm. Certainly, practitioner query is certainly starting to become involved in the, in the policy and practice of, of, of certainly in Scottish education in terms of our GTCS standards and so on, it's starting to creep up a little bit. So it is interesting exploring this idea of um, 
practitioner inquiry, and I think it's it's Kate Wall that talks about your itch, finding your itch, and then investigating that and digging a little bit deeper. So, so my final question to you for this interview section, then, Jonathan, is should all teachers be engaged in some form of research? Um, yeah, it's actually it's interesting you mentioned Kate Wall, who I work with quite a bit, and and she sometimes makes a distinction between being engaged in research versus being engaged with research. So, you know, in the sense of like doing it versus maybe reading about it, knowing about it, thinking about it. And I think that, you know, in terms of being engaged with research in some way or other, I would say probably, yeah. I mean, to me, I think it should be part of our professionalism. I think GTCS standards recognize that um, and reflect that. I know they've just changed them, haven't they? But, uh, but I, I believe it was already in the standards that we should be, to some extent, engaging with evidence. You know, it's a bit like, you know, medical uh, professionals. You know, you'd want a doctor who actually was up to date with the evidence, and you know, if they prescribed you something, you it would be reassuring to think that they actually knew what they were talking about, and they weren't just doing it on the basis of a kind of well, it sort of looks like I got a gut feeling that I think it might be this, and um, you'd want to know that they actually were up to date. Um, so in terms of being engaged with research, um, you know, yes, uh, in terms of engaged in research in the sense of carrying out your own research um, or publishing it or sharing it at conferences or maybe collaborating with other schools or collaborating with universities, that's probably, you know, it's a great thing um, if, if, if it's for you, but it's probably not for everyone. You know, I, I did that sort of thing. It benefited me. I know other people that love doing that sort of thing, but it's probably not for everyone. But I mean, I suppose you could also see it as kind of a continuum. Like there's people like yourselves who are very interested in this stuff. And then there's people at the other end of the scale who are, I've never so much looked at as an educational blog or picked up a research paper in, you know, since their training year. Um, and there's a whole rich range of things in between. Um, so I think, you know, people have to find a level they're comfortable with that, that works with their um, that you know other aspects of their career and their lives but i think most people just kind of going back to one of your earlier questions most people could probably benefit and it may actually make their lives easier if they engage with evidence and find out um you know how certain things work certainly and that that's a wonderful way to bring to the end that interview section and we're going to move into um a new section for for 2021 of the becoming educated podcast and that's my, my quick file i don't know how quick file they're going to be and um, but before we do that um, can you please share where listeners can find out more about you, where they can engage with you, and of course, where they can buy your books? Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, I'm on Twitter, so it's JW underscore Firth, um, and I'm, I'm fairly active on that and uh, connect with lots of teachers on there. Um, you could probably find me on the University of Strathclyde website. Um, and I've got my own website as well, which is jonathanfirth.co.uk. And that's got like my books, um, links to those and my blog. And there's also a contact form as well. So if people wanted to use that, uh, that's a good way to, that's kind of got a bit of everything on, on there. Um, summary of what I've been involved with and talks I've given and things like that. Certainly, I'd, I'd encourage people who's interested to, to delve into it, to your blog. I certainly thoroughly enjoyed uh, almost a few hours diving into that <laughs> and some of, some of what you share and it definitely developing my thinking. And of course, I, I would highly recommend the book that you co-wrote with Mark Smith, uh, Psychology in the Classroom, A Teacher's Guide to What Works. I really enjoyed reading that and really took a lot from that. So thank you very much. Um, so three questions for you. Um, 
I, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing your thoughts. And the first one there is what makes great teaching for you? Are you looking for like one sentence answers to these? Sure as possible. <laughs> sure as possible. Um, I, I guess I would say like effective, but also engaging. I think we can focus too much on one or the other. Um, a lot of what I talk about is effective teaching, but it should be enjoyable too. Brilliant. I, I totally agree. Um, second question, what one thing would you prioritise to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Um, well, we spoke about teachers engaging with evidence and I think teachers, and we spoke about time, I think um, teachers need a bit more time focused to this. Um, we have very, very busy timetables in this country, uh, so more time to engage with the evidence. Certainly, I read a piece, and I think it was on Tess, um, I think it was from Kenny Piper, who found that Scottish teachers have the highest class commitment time in the developed world of, of teachers across the world. I find that very wow. interesting yeah. to read. Um, final one. If you could change one thing in education, what would that be? Um, I think uh, supporting new teachers a bit more. Um, it's, it's a bit sink or swim, especially after the probation year. Um, we perhaps put a bit too much down to like whether the teacher is good or not um, and not enough down to the context, um, which we, we try to avoid that thinking with pupils, but with teachers, it's kind of like you're a good teacher or you're not a good teacher. I think that it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of time and money as a society training new teachers, investing all this time and effort into them if we don't then kind of guide them through the first year and make sure we don't lose them. Um, so I think supporting them as much as we can, a bit more than currently is done. Certainly, I definitely, definitely echo that. And I know that um, through Stepping Stones, Scotland are trying to do a little bit and support more of the, the teachers. And I know that in England, the, the early career framework, I think you also wrote a chapter for the early career framework handbook from the Charter College. I did, yeah. Which, I, which I also, I've also read through that and I've really enjoyed that. So thank you. Um, that brings us to the end. Jonathan, I'd like to thank you so, so much for, for giving up your time this evening to, to chat with me for the Becoming Educated podcast. So thank you very much. That was a pleasure. Really good to speak to you, Darren. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLesley or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from, so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated, and I do hope to see you there.